Well, here's a word for you this morning. Not a word from the Lord, don't be confused there. Anybody know what frigatriscacophobia is? Let me say that again. Friga, friga, uh, I even practiced it. And I was going to put it on the screen, but I thought that might give it away, but I can't say it, so it doesn't give it away anyway. Frigatriscacidophobia, that's it. Any clues? Yes! How did you know that? The Frigga. The Frigga. Well, what's Frigga stand for? It's the goddess of the north. Yeah. It's the fear of Friday the 13th. It's the real deal. I love that look. Okay. People fear the 13th for all kinds of reasons. Frigga is the Norse goddess for whom Friday is named. Triskaidecka is Greek for the number 13. Some people, you know, they, they look at 12 months in a year, they look at 12 hours in a day, they look at 12 signs of the zodiac, 13 just doesn't seem right. Some Christians believe Jesus was crucified on Friday the 13th. That's kind of how I responded. Some believe the flood happened on Friday the 13th. I'm just saying this is what people believe. Others see 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, so 12... For many is a complete number. Now, I read about a treatment center in Pennsylvania that is staffed by the Free Thought Society every Friday the 13th that is sponsored. Um, that, and so people come and, and, and they work at this sponsored clinic. If you attend, this is a quote, you can work with a treatment nurse who will thoughtfully guide you through an obstacle course that includes walking under a ladder, stepping on a crack, Trashing zodiac signs, throwing darts at photographs, dancing inside with an open umbrella, and breaking a mirror. Just in case you were in need of that. Next time you're in a really tall building, notice what floor is missing on the elevator. A study done in 2011 by the Stress Management Center and Phobia Institute estimated that 17 to 21 million people in the United States are affected by a fear of Friday the 13th. And that nearly, listen to this, nearly a billion dollars is lost every year on that day or those days when there are two in a year because people will not fly or do business they would normally do. Now, you can laugh about that if you want, but these folks are serious about what they believe. So, let me ask you, what do you believe? Let's talk, about, let's talk about belief for, for just a couple minutes. We, we use that word belief, don't we? So many different ways, so many different expressions. What do we mean when we say, I believe? Well, it can mean different things. Do you think it's going to rain tonight? Yeah, I, I believe it will. Is this the best pizza you've ever eaten? Oh, absolutely, I believe so. Do you believe the mountains will still be there tomorrow morning? Uh, yes, I believe that. Do you believe the Broncos will win a Super Bowl this year? Yes. Do you believe in God? Yes. How is believing in God different from all the other things in which we believe? And does our belief in God affect the way that we live? That's... 
the question that drives the Apostles' Creed. That's the question that, that drove the mindset of those who were followers of Jesus living in the first 150 years or so after his life. The creed was birthed in the culture of the Roman Empire. I shared with you last week that the oldest documents that we have that are very close to our modern rendition of the Apostles' Creed, they were referred to as the Old Roman Creed. And it wasn't a creed that Romans aspired to. It was a creed of those who were followers of Christ living under that regime. Rome, as you know, was a polytheistic culture. Had a whole pantheon of gods. Gods of heaven and gods of earth and gods of the underworld. Gods that were worshipped truly not so much for their position as for their function. Romans were interested in what gods could provide for them. Probably not all that different from any other human being. And as Christianity grew in that climate, the challenge was to be faithful to one God, even when life was on the line, be faithful to one God who had distinctly revealed himself through his Son which, of course, we understand to be the ultimate provision from God for a person's greatest need. So in a thoroughly polytheistic culture, one of the most prominent uses of the creed in those early years was as a a catechism tool. It was to teach people this is what Christians believe in preparation for baptism, which was the entry point into the church which participation in the church marked a true believer. And the process of that teaching, that education, that catechism, was oftentimes one to two years. Safe to say, there was not easy believism in the early church of the first and second centuries The Roman culture was hostile to Christianity. Church leadership, therefore, was discerning. They wanted to make sure that that people were both serious about their commitment and instructed in right belief because the stakes were high. Can you imagine? Now, you sure you want to be a follower of Jesus? Because you could die tomorrow for this. Are you good with that? Oh, sure, I'm good with that. Well, uh, let's just make sure you know what it is that you believe so that if you do die, you don't recant or you don't say something stupid on the way to dying. That was kind of the mindset of the early church. This was serious business, folks. Really serious stuff. And, And that's why the creeds, as I've told you, were often formulated. They were an education tool. They were to identify, here's what we believe, here's what we don't believe. And, and it was what was going on in the culture that often shaped the particular points of a creed. So, the Apostles' Creed begins with those words, I believe in God. Doesn't say, I believe there is a God. It says, I believe in God. 
Given the cultural climate into which this creed came to, to life, we, we need to hear that statement for what it is. Its intent was to make clear the specific truths which Christians stake their lives upon. Let's be clear about the Christian God that these people are willing to die for. 20th century theologian Karl Barth wrote about these words. This I believe is consummated in a meeting with one who is not man, but God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by my believing, I see myself completely filled and determined by this object of my faith. And what interests me is not my faith, but he in whom I believe. I love that. Are we, as the people of God, consumed with the object of our faith? Or are we just people who have faith? This is not a casual statement of Christian belief. The Apostles' Creed is, I stake my life on this God in which I believe, because it was forged in the heat of a fairly hostile polytheism in Roman culture. Starts with belief as God, in God, as Father. As the Father. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is an incredible starting point. And, and obviously, it was, it was the life and, and teaching of Jesus that was the impetus for this truth statement. Jesus was the one that taught his followers to address God as Father. And given what we know about the Father figure in Roman culture, it's a pretty outrageous statement. It had the potential both to attract people as well as drive people away. For those growing up in a Jewish home, there was a good chance that they understood the image of father in a pretty positive light. Because in the Jewish culture, children were cherished. They were cherished by mom, cherished by dad. Now to be sure, as I've told you in the past, Jesus referenced to God as father, as his father, and, and his invitation to his followers to address Yahweh as father, I'm thinking would have initially been a stretch. It would have put some off because that, that feels just a little bit too cozy to the one who knocked down the walls of Jericho, to the one who shook the mountain of Sinai, to the one who parted the Red Seas, to the one who, who split open the earth that swallowed 3,000 plus of their ancestors. To call him father just seems a little too close, but, but that was the permission that Jesus was giving those who followed him and by their commitment to him, his father became their father. But even though it was a stretch, it would have been because of the intimacy with God not because of their understanding of father figure. Does that make sense? For the most part, Jews were, were pretty positive in their understanding of a father. For the Romans, completely different story. 
And, and this was the culture in which the creed was birthed. In Roman society, the figure of a father was not that of a loving one, but of a powerful one. The father in the Roman household ruled his house and the members of his house like a master. He was often very emotionally distant from the members of his family. And and listen to this. The authority of the Roman father over his children remained for as long as he wanted it to. Children were only out from under the rule of their father, no matter how outrageous he might be in his demands of them, they were only out from under that if he emancipated them. A a legal statement made in society that they were released from under his care, more from under his rule. And in the very wealthy Roman household, the father had power over the entire place, over all of the women, over all of the children, over all of the grandchildren, over all of the slaves. They were property. And in the church of Rome, there would have been those who who had these master-like fathers. Some would have been slaves whose natural father had abandoned them in the streets. It was a legal and acceptable practice in the Roman Empire to just get rid of unwanted children. They were left to die from exposure, or sometimes they were picked up by someone often only to be raised up and then sold into slavery. Girls would be married off by their fathers for convenience and financial gain. Rome was not a nice place. The father of the Roman household was a despot, which is why I think the next word of the creed is so intriguing. I believe in God the Father Almighty. The Greek word used for almighty is is derived from two root words. The first is the prefix pan, meaning all-encompassing, like pan-American, encompassing all of the Americans and the people in those countries. Pandemic is another way that we understand that. That that, That covers the world, includes the world. Pan ruler. Almighty is literally what it means. All ruling, ruling over all. Which when I first thought about that, it struck me, that seems rather redundant in terms of how the Romans would hear that. But then I realized that, that the Christians were wanting the Romans to hear something very specifically. I think, I think there's a good reason for it. We tend to think of God as, as almighty, meaning all-powerful, having the ability to do any and, and all things. And he certainly is that. But the Roman Christians would have thought in terms of, of a ruler in relationships. How a father conducts himself in relationship to the members of his family. And it seems to me that, that the writers of the creed were, were separating the two. Because first of all, 
They wanted, they wanted the, the, the Roman believers to understand God is a father. And, and as that might have been a point of hesitation or, or fear or concern for some, then they had the opportunity to talk about God as father. For the Jewish believer, that would have been an image of closeness and not emotional distance. One who cares for and provides for his family. And, and yes, he does rule over his people, but he does so in love as, as one who cares for and provides for them. And so they didn't want to leave it at just father, but father and almighty. And, and the Roman concept of father includes almighty, ruling and doing whatever he wants to do. But for the Christians, he's father first. And he's an almighty one. But he's a good father. He's revealed himself to us in his son. You can see how it becomes a teaching point. I read a story this week of a Catholic nun whose father had been an abusive alcoholic one. What was attractive to her as a teenager was was the Christian message of a different kind of father. Because that's all she'd known. She had friends who had loving fathers who didn't come home drunk, shouting at the family and being abusive to them, as she describes it. She said she felt deeply deprived until she discovered God, the Father, a Father who really cared for her. Christopher Hitchens, in his book, God is Not Great, put it like this. He said, I think I would be rather awful, it would be rather awful if if it was true that God exists. If there was a permanent total round-the-clock divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea. (laughs) For Hitchens, God is the ruler and so must by definition be a a stolen in the sky, a big brother, and who in their right mind would ever want such a being to exist? Orthodox Christianity has found that God who exists reveals himself as father to those who put their faith in him, to those who believe into. For those who just believe there is a God, The invitation to intimacy happens when they move from believing into a God and letting the truth of what they are learning to believe begin to shape their lives. I I think God as Father was both an important talking point for the early Christians in Rome and it was a non-negotiable teaching point in the creed for those in the Roman culture, because that is how God chose to reveal himself through Jesus. And so it's interesting to me that instead of steering away from a potentially controversial topic, they just put it right front and center. Let's put this in writing, folks, because there's stuff going around us in our culture, they may have been thinking, that is going to challenge this. We're living in a culture where there's a lot of wretched, rotten fathers. And... People are going to be tempted to discount that and throw that belief out. God is Father? No way. Christians say, yes way. God as Father like no father you have ever seen or experienced in your life. 
They wrote it into the creed as orthodoxy. So I think it's also a talking point for us. Bad fathers abound in our culture. Some of you have had them. And the revelation of God as father can be daunting to some. But it can also, like the nun in the earlier story, be attractive and be something that, that, that brings God to a place of personal and, and intimate in ways that, that a person might not ever imagine. And seems to me that the life we live in relationship to God as our Heavenly Father can be a powerful witness to that precious truth that we embrace. Are you with me? This is front and center, the creed. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Father. It's just taken right off of the pages of Jesus. Permission to refer to Yahweh as Father. What a gift. Okay. Now, before we look at the the last statement of this first line in the creed, I want us to to stand and read two very brief texts. I think that they'll be uh, familiar to you. One's from Genesis, one is from John. Let's read them together. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Okay. My brothers and sisters, you can sit. And as you do, let's put that next slide up, Rachel. Okay. They're both here together. Oh, yes. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jill. I'm just so intrigued by this. I'm sorry. I just had, I was pushing right on. Okay. Genesis text at the top. John's words in the opening of his gospel in the middle. You've read them both. There's, there's some difference there. I want you to talk with a neighbor for just a minute or two. What orthodox Christian truth is implied in these two passages? And how important is it? Okay? So, talk with your neighbor. Okay, we ready? Jill would like to point out that this is proof that Jesus died on Friday the 13th. A budding theologian right here in our midst. Okay, so what do you see? What did you talk about? What orthodox Christian truth is implied in these passages? Triune God. Okay. How important is that? It's paramount. What else? Somebody else want to add a, another comment? What did you hear from your neighbor? Why did your neighbor say it was so important? Why is it so important? Silence? 
<laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Nobody created God. Yes, Therese. God speaks clearly through his son, through his word, and the spirit is a gift from him to give us ears to listen and to follow. Nat, good, good observation. Anything else? You know, I, I, think, <clears throat> I think these two texts are, are important for us because they do, they give us a little window into the developing theology of the early church, um, when you go back and read, and, and it's, some of it is very fun reading, some of it is very heady, and, and you'll be asleep in no time. <clears throat> but the fun stuff really presents the struggle and the battle. And again, because this was, this was a developing theology. I mean, think about the Old Testament. There is no clear reference to God having a son in the Old Testament. The Jews were monotheistic people. And one of the reasons that Jesus got into hot water was why? Because he did and said things that only God had the right to do and say. So the, the developing theology emphasized the importance of Jesus. There was, there was a sense as God worked in the lives of his people and in the leaders of the early church, wow, not only was Jesus who he said he was, but this is not just for us. This is for everyone who would become his follower. They need to understand that they're not just following a good man or a good example. They are surrendering their lives in an act of lifetime obedience to the one who is the creator of all things. According to Paul in Colossians 1, according to John in his first chapter. And yet you look back at those words in Genesis there's, there's no mention of a son there. There is a Hebrew plural pronoun from which we kind of think, well, maybe there was something going on there. There's mention of the spirit hovering over the, the chaos that was, that was the unformed earth at that point. But we recognize that, that in these two, there was a growing awareness in the New Testament church that... Jesus is God. And that's so important in the Roman culture because it was, it was the idea of, of a man being God. Remember the Apostles' Creed, I'm, I'm hoping that, that you are, are getting the idea, it's thoroughly Trinitarian, but, but it's heavy on Jesus. Last week, I mentioned to you there are 10 statements about Jesus there are only three about the Father and two about the Spirit. It's because within the Christian tradition, the early Christian tradition, nobody questioned the role of God as Father. Nobody questioned the existence of God's Spirit in the earth. But there was lots of pushback and questions about Jesus, God. I think it's the idea of Jesus being God that was probably the hardest for believers to wrap their minds around. I think it still is. 
we wrestle with the truth of the incarnation. John says the word, Jesus, made all things. Paul clearly states, as I mentioned to the Colossians, that all things were made by Jesus and and for Jesus. So the idea of a man being God is truly mind-boggling. John and Paul did not have any doubts about God creating the world, and they want God's people to know that Jesus is a part of that activity. So the oneness of the three persons of our God is a great mystery, and we can affirm that all three were actively involved in the creation of heaven and earth, all that there is. Now, why is this important? Because we need to see creation as the work of God. Now, there is a hint in this statement, maker of heaven and earth. There's a hint of a defense against a heresy that was known as Gnosticism. The Gnostics really began to grow in the second century, and they embraced a, a, a dualistic view on life that stated that since God is spirit, then all that is spirit, all that is spiritual is good. That's of God. But there is an equal and there is an opposite force that created all that is material, all that is corporeal. Genesis tells us that God saw all that he had made, and it was good. All that is matter matters to God. People and animals and nature and a part of the creation mandate is to steward all that God has made. I think we need to hear this. True confession, I have no idea what that might have meant to the Romans, maker of heaven and earth, other than it was certainly a challenge to the pantheon of of their gods. But I think it has great meaning for us. First, we're not makers of this world. God is the one who made this world. And Scripture is clear about that. And and we are, therefore, stewards of this world. We recognize the stewardship that was given to humanity in Genesis. It's His world. We are responsible and we are accountable for our treatment of it. And I'm pretty sure that none of us would subscribe to Gnostic view of matter being evil. Any Gnostics out there? Want to raise your hand? Okay. But I do think that it's possible to live like we think it is. I think it's it's possible to be more Gnostic in our living than in our thinking. Creation of this world is a work of God's beauty and God's imagination. And I think it's reasonable, and, and I'll be honest, I've, I've not done this enough in my life. I think we need to hurt when this world, which is from God and an expression of His beauty and His creativity, when this world is not taken care of, and when it is not appreciated. People matter, trees matter, resources of all kinds matter, and, and we dare not live Careless, consumeristic lives without considering the consequences of our actions upon the rest of the earth and its inhabitants. For years and years and years, 
in the church. Care for people, care for the earth was viewed as the social gospel. And that wasn't a positive statement. There's evangelism and there's the social gospel. I don't think so. I think evangelism and care for others and the world and its resources go hand in hand. It's a gift from God to us. I believe in God the Father, maker, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Now, I don't know what your view of heaven is. I hope we've documented in our life together at Applewood over the years that it's probably not sitting on the clouds and strumming harps. It's probably not sitting around in some sort of executive conference room asking all the questions of God that we have on this earth. That's really silly. What we do know is that it is an amazing, beautiful place. And we do know that the inhabitants of the kingdom of God in heaven are really concerned about worshiping him. We see that demonstrated in those early chapters 3 and 4 of of Revelation. N.T. Wright, and I tend to think he's going down the right path, doesn't necessarily believe that the Scripture teaches, if we do the hard exegetical work, that heaven is this far-off place that we are all going to be transported to when we die. He takes a hard look at the end of Revelation where John talks about the new heaven, the new Jerusalem coming down to the new earth. And the, the recreation of earth. It's possible that maybe God liked what he did the first time so much, even after we've badly screwed it up, that he's going to redo what he did and it's going to be even more glorious than it was. I don't think that's unreasonable. It's a, it's a return to the garden when you look at those images from early Genesis to, to late Revelation. That return to what God has made. If that's true, then we of all people ought to be living our lives with a great appreciation of the beauty and wonder of what God has put into place as broken and as hurting and as messed up as it is because of what we've done. We can be people who are, who are living our lives with an eye to redemption that is even going to be more beautiful than what we have now. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and maker of earth. And it's possible in our reading of Revelation that the two of those things are going to meld together and be one new glorious existence in relationship with God someday. I love that. Okay. Thank you, Zach. 
Praise team, why don't you come on up and let me read just a few lines from one of my favorite theologians, J.I. Packer. Packer writes about this line, and I just thought, this is, it's so good. I can't say it any better than this. I, there's a lot of things I can't say any better than how he says things. He says, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, so begins the Bible. The heavens and the earth is Bible language for everything that is. I like that. He says, it is arguable how much or how little Genesis 1 and 2 tell us about the method of creation, whether, for instance, they do or do not rule out the idea of physical organisms evolving through species of thousands of years. What is clear, however, says Packer, is that their main aim is to tell us not how the world was made, but who made the world. Who made the world? He talks about introducing the artist. He says, the message of the first two chapters of Genesis is this. You have seen the sea? You've seen the sky? The sun, moon, and stars? You have watched the birds and the fish? You have observed the landscape, the vegetation, the animals, the insects, all the big things and little things together? You have marveled at the wonderful complexity of human beings with all their powers and skills and the deep feelings of fascination, attraction, and affection that men and women arouse in each other? Fantastic, isn't it? Well now, meet the one who is behind it all. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. As if to say, says Packer, now that you have enjoyed these works of art, you must shake hands with the artist. Since you were thrilled by the music, we will introduce you to the composer. It was to show us the creator and his beauty. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're about as people of God. And I've said way too many times, we're not the first ones to believe it. It's been going on a long time. We're part of a great crowd of people who believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. People may think we're nuts, but at least we're nuts with a lot of other people who are nuts too. And there is great comfort in that. Amen.